Welcome to Crescent City Crime, dear listeners. I'm Tracy. And I'm Brian. And the Mardi Gras is over with. We are officially into March. Springtime is almost upon us. And springtime makes me think of corrupt politicians. Yeah, yeah, we, we, we survived we survived Mardi Gras. We did. And speaking of corrupt politicians, when when a float goes past and someone on the float makes a certain gesture towards you, it's best to just not give them the satis- the drunken person who's on the float any satisfaction, ignore them instead of returning the favor, especially if you're the man New Orleans. Yes, our um not so esteemed mayor is under uh she is under fire right now she has um not been doing very well she is being investigated on multiple accounts well i'm sorry multiple fronts right like uh she's been misusing an apartment paid for by taxpayers to have an affair and she's been likely misappropriating funds to buy clothing with. And there's been a lot of other things that she should have done but did not do. She did this uh, ma- very politically oriented mailing of these, uh, you know, these cards about to uh, active voters, okay? Uh, her organization use city funds to mail out these uh essentially she was like campaigning against the recall yeah she we're, we are attempting to recall her and whereas there's um you know politicians this is usually like state legislators will send out these boring pamphlets that let you know you know what's going on but they have to be very careful what they say uh, it can't be really campaign oriented. It has to be, you know, kind of like Joe Friday, you know, just the facts, ma'am, you know. Uh, and you're supposed to simply mail them out to every constituent. You're not supposed to simply just mail out this stuff to only the active voters, but that's what her organization did. And after it became public that she did this, uh, her Basic, this organization, that this is political action committee that she's been a part of for a very long time, that's also seems to double as a campaign fund for her. They, they reimbursed the city over $50,000 for these mailings. Wow. All of, okay. a, all of a sudden, you know, of, of their own accord, she probably got an opinion from a lawyer she deals with quite frequently that this is uh, something that could be seen as malfeasance. Example. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that that's just one thing, and we're going to have to see what happens and how it goes. It Again, this is something that has a lot of moving parts to it, different components. And where we are sitting right now, there she, she may or may not be booted out of office, although she most likely will be. According to org, the organization behind the recall effort, they turned into the Registrar Voters Office enough signatures, and they've just uh, won a settlement with the Registrar Voters Office of Orleans Parish, to where the Registrar Voters Office has agreed to strike twenty-five thousand inactive voters off the rolls, which means 
5,000 fewer signatures are needed to initiate a recall election. Mm. You see, now once the signatures are verified, that does not recall her from office automatically. It simply triggers a recall election. Right. And they, where, where voters simply vote yes or no. And also, um, you know, she was reelected because there was not a viable candidate running against her. So even if there is a recall election, we will have to see if the, if, if, if she does get recalled and if there is another election, we will have to see who comes out of the woodwork to run in the race. Now, in the meantime, there's uh, an interim acting mayor, interim mayor, which has to be one of the two at-large members of the New Orleans City Council. Uh, Councilman at large, J.P. Morrell, has volunteered in advance for this duty because he has declared that he has no intention of running for mayor mm. in the event of an election of a regular of a of a special election to follow the recall election, right? And of course, it. I mean, ethically speaking, it would have to be J.P. Morrell because council uh, council person at large. Uh, Helena Moreno. Uh, Who I do think would be an excellent mayor. It's believed that she does want to run for mayor. I hope she does. So ethically speaking, it would not be, you know, it would be improper for her to assume the the interim mayor position if she's running for office. And also, Helena Moreno has been calling Mayor Cantrell to the carpet for a lot of things. So I would expect for her to... Uh, stick with the ethics of the situation. No, she's been before before coming home to New Orleans to, you know, get on the New Orleans City Council. She was a state legislator, you know, prior to that, uh, a local news anchor. Well, before before she got into politics, she was a local news anchor. Yes, yes, yeah. So it's prior to the state legislature, and she has a regardless of whether or not someone agrees with her politics, no one has been able to accuse her of anything unethical, you know, crooked or any, any wrongdoing. She has had the highest level of integrity. Which is rare in the state and even more rare in the city of New Orleans, I would say. Yeah, there's there's no dirty laundry on Helena Moreno. Uh, the best thing conservatives can do against Helena Moreno is throw out the L word, the liberal. Yeah. That, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that's all they can do. But we're talking about a New Orleans election, which New Orleans is mostly blue. So, you know, New Orleans, there's always going to be a Democratic mayor, of course. Uh, Republicans who run in New Orleans are just simply looking for name recognition. That is true. However, well, not however, really. That was the wrong word to use. In any case, we are going to be talking about a corrupt politician from the past and it is going to it, it is always the case brian when i start to look into these things you know what happens <laughs> i find out more information than anticipated and i realize well it's going to take more than one episode <laughs> so for the next three episodes we are going to be talking about huey p long 
who was the 40th governor of the state of Louisiana. And, you know, I would say, I mean, was he a colorful politician? Absolutely. But he was also um, quite controversial. He made a lot of enemies. And he had a Trumpian vibe to him. Yeah, at one point he was considered to be a threat on the national presidential front. Uh, like uh, a certain other governor that came in you know, you know, decades after him. He was not just colorful and uh, corrupt, but also very popular. Right. But today's today's story starts on August the 30th of 1893. Huey Pierce Long was born. He was born near Winfield, Louisiana. Winfield is located in the north central part of the state in Wynn Parish. Wynn Parish was impoverished and the residents were mostly Southern Baptist and they were considered outsiders in the political system. Interestingly enough, during the Civil War, Wynn Parish was a stronghold of, of the Union in the state that was pro-Confederate. Did you know that? Ah, uh, no, I, did, I, didn't, I didn't know that. And re- reason why, I guess the reason why I didn't know that is typical, your typical student of the American Civil War isn't going to read very much about Louisiana with the exception of the the naval battle where Admiral Farragut took over the city of New Orleans, you know, ho hum. That's 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 it, right? But you know, there's pr- pretty pretty much, and it seems that the between that and the majority of history that Orleans New Orleans has with the American Civil War is mostly the Restoration period, where uh, you know the U.S. Army uh, was occupying New Orleans. Right, right. Huey Long was one of nine children, and even though he grew up in an impoverished area, his family was comfortable. He was homeschooled until age 11, and then he entered the public school system. He earned a reputation as an excellent student with a, with a remarkable memory, and he convinced his teachers to let him skip the seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Quite the lawyer already. Yes, quite the lawyer already. He attended Winfield High School, and while there, he and his friends he and his friends formed a secret society, which advertised their exclusivity by wearing a blue ribbon. Ac- <laughs> according to Long, his club's mission was to run things, lay down certain rules that the students would have to follow. In 1910, the faculty learned of his antics and warned him to obey the school's rules. But Huey Long continued to rebel. He wrote and distributed a flyer that criticized his teachers. <laughs> and at this time, there was a recently implement, implemented state-mandated fourth year of secondary education. And he campaigned against that as a student. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he was expelled for this. <laughs> And in response, Huey Long successfully petitioned to fire the principal 
<laughs> so the principal wow. did get fired. Uh, that that is incredible student activism. It it really is. Uh, but he never returned to high school. Okay, so he was essentially a, a high school dropout. Yeah, well, he kind of proved he was too smart for high school, I would say. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Now, before his expulsion, he was active in the debate club. And at a state debate competition in Baton Rouge, he won a full tuition scholarship to Louisiana State University. But the scholarship did not cover textbooks or living expenses. So his family could not afford for him to attend. And since he didn't even complete high school, he could not attend college. Wow. He entered the workforce as a traveling salesman in the rural South. Then in September of 1911, he started attending seminary classes at Oklahoma Baptist University at the urging of his mother, who was a devout Baptist. He lived with his brother, George, and he only attended a single semester and he decided that he did not want to be a preacher, so he focused on law. He borrowed $100 from his brother so he could attend the University of Oklahoma College of Law for a semester in 1912. To earn money while studying law, he continued to work as a salesman. Of the four classes he took, he received one incomplete and three C's. He confessed that he did not do well in law school because he was tempted by the gambling houses and other vices. Yeah, yeah, that can happen. During this time, he met a woman named Rose McConnell at a baking contest that he had, that he was attending to promote, to sell baking supplies. And in 1913, they married at the Gayoso Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. Shortly after their marriage, he shared with Rose his aspiration for a career in politics. They quickly had three children. They had a daughter who they named Rose and two sons, Russell B. Long, who became a U.S. Senator, and Palmer Reed Long, who became uh, prominent in the oil business. In 1914... Huey Long enrolled at Tulane University Law School in New Orleans, and after a year of study that concentrated on the courses necessary for the bar exam, he successfully petitioned the Louisiana Supreme Court for permission to take the test before its scheduled June 1915 date. He was examined in May, passed, and received his license to practice. And according to Huey Long, he said, I came out of that courtroom running for office. (laughs) Okay. So he established a private practice in Winfield. He represented poor plaintiffs, uh, usually in workers' compensation cases. He managed to avoid fighting fighting in World War I by obtaining a draft deferment on the grounds that he was married and had dependent children. In 1918, he invested $1,050, which is the equivalent to $18,000 in in 2020. So it's like the most recent or one of those calculators that I could find in a well that struck oil. The Standard Oil Company refused to accept any of the oil in its pipelines, which cost Huey Long his investment. And this caused a lifelong hatred of Standard Oil. Ah, yeah, yeah. If a business makes an enemy out of a politician in Louisiana, that business might eventually regret it. 
well, we, I want everybody to remember that he hated Standard Oil because it, it does come up again. Yep. That same year, he entered the race to serve on the three-seat Louisiana Railroad Commission. In the Democratic primary, he made it to the runoff against the incumbent, Burke Bridges. The runoff was close, but he defeated Bridges by just 636 votes. Wow. Okay. On the commission, he forced utilities to lower rates, ordered railroads to extend service to small towns, and demanded that Standard Oil cease the importation of Mexican crude oil and use more oil from Louisiana wells. In the gubernatorial election of 1920, he campaigned heavily for John M. Parker. After Parker was elected, they, they became bitter rivals. Their break was largely caused by Long's demand and Parker's refusal to declare the state's oil pipelines public utilities. Huey Long was infuriated when Parker allowed oil companies, led by Standard Oil's legal team, to assist in writing severance taxes. I'm sorry, severance tax laws. Long denounced Parker as corporate chattel and the feud climaxed in 1921 when John Parker tried unsuccessfully to have Huey Long ousted from the commission. So he's making enemies pretty quick. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. By 1922, Huey Long had become chairman of the commission now called the Public Service Commission. That year, he prosecuted the Cumberland Telephone and Telegraph Company for unfair rate increases. He successfully argued the case on appeal before the United States Supreme Court, which resulted in cash refunds to thousands of overcharged customers. After the decision, Chief Justice and former President William Howard Taft praised Long as the most brilliant, brilliant lawyer who ever practiced before the court. It's high praise. Yeah, it, it is a it is quite it is a lifetime achievement to argue just one case successfully before the United States Supreme Court. Yes, o only a handful of attorneys have argued as many as six or more times successfully before the Supreme Court. On August the thirtieth of nineteen twenty three, he announces candidacy for the governorship of Louisiana. He campaigned throughout the state and personally distributed circulars and posters. Part of his campaign was denouncing Governor Parker as a corporate stooge, and he vilified Standard Oil and assailed local political bosses. He, he focused on rural areas that were disenfranchised by the state's political establishment. But despite an enthusiastic campaign, he finished third in the primary and he was eliminated. We are going to pause here to take a quick break. Huey Long spent the next four years building his reputation and political organization, especially in the heavily Catholic urban South. Despite disagreeing with their politics, he campaigned for Catholic U.S. Senators in 1924 and 1926. In 1927, when the government mismanaged the Great Mississippi Flood of 1927, Huey Long saw an opportunity, an opportunity to gain the support of Cajuns whose land had been affected. That same year, he launched his second campaign for governor. His slogan was, every man a king, but nobody wears a crown. 
He developed novel campaign techniques, such as the use of sound trucks and radio commercials. His stance on race was unorthodox. Uh, he was the first Southern mass leader to leave aside race baiting and appeals to the Southern tradition and the Southern past, and he addressed himself to the social and economic problems of the present, which I think is a good strategy. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, un unheard of at the time. There were times when the campaign descended into chaos. When the incumbent governor called Huey P. Long a liar in the lobby of the Roosevelt Hotel, which is in New Orleans on Canal Street, it's probably the, would you say it's the ritziest hotel in the city? It seems to be, yeah. Yeah, yeah about, and one, one of the oldest, if not the oldest. Well, Huey Long punched him in the face in the lobby of that hotel. <laughs> okay. Which is the kind of thing that's like in Louisiana. It's violence among politicians is, is really nothing new. No, it's not. You're right. In the Democratic primary election, he won with, or his margin was the largest in state history, and no opponent chose to face him in a runoff. So after earning the Democratic nomination, he defeated the Republican nominee in the general election with 96.1% of the vote. So at the age of 35, he was the youngest person ever elected governor of Louisiana. So yeah, 35. It's very unusual to become a governor in Louisiana, especially at the age of 35. If you become a governor in your 40s, you're considered to be a young governor. Yes, you are considered to be a young governor. In the primary election, oh, I'm sorry, some 15,000 Louisiana residents traveled to Baton Rouge for the inauguration. He set up large tents, free drinks, and jazz bands on the Capitol grounds. During his first days in office, he moved quickly to consolidate power. He fired hundreds of opponents in the state bureaucracy at all ranks from cabinet-level heads of departments to state road workers. Like previous governors, he filled the vacancies with patronage appointments from his network of political supporters. Every state employee who depended on him for a job was expected to pay a portion of their salary at election, time, at, at election time directly into his campaign fund. Does that still happen? Do you know? It, it, it does. Oh, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Except it's, it's, it's gonna, it's unspoken. Mm. Okay. It's simply, it's simply understood. Once his control over the state's political apparatus was strengthened, he pushed several bills through the 1929 session of the Louisiana State Legislature to fulfill campaign promises. His bills met opposition from legislators, wealthy citizens, and the media, but he used aggressive tactics to ensure passage. He would appear unannounced on the floor of both the House and Senate or in-house committees, and he would corral reluctant representatives and state senators, and he bullied his opponents. When an opposing legislator once suggested Long was unfamiliar with the Louisiana Constitution, he declared, I'm the Constitution around here now, which was that Trumpian vibe I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, he did have an active career, or I'm sorry, an active uh, term as governor, 
And one of the big things that he did was he made textbooks free to all students in the state of Louisiana. Yes, ordinarily at that time, children of lesser financial means would rely upon benefactors, you know, charity. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the other, some other things that he did was he sent the National Guard to raid brothels and gambling dens in New Orleans. He gave the Guard orders to shoot without hesitation. Gambling equipment was burned. Sex workers were arrested. And over $25,000 was confiscated for government funds. Local newspapers ran photos of the National Guardsmen forcibly searching nude women, which is pretty horrible. City authorities had not requested military force, and martial law had not been declared. The Louisiana Attorney General denounced Huey P. Long's actions as illegal, but Long rebuked him by saying that nobody asked you for your opinion. He also had the original Governor's governor's Mansion, which had been built in 1887, raised by convicts from the state penitentiary under his personal supervision. In its place, Huey Long had a much larger Georgian-style mansion built, and it bears a strong resemblance to the White House. Yeah, that's, uh, the White House was constructed long before the Civil War. Uh, So this was, uh, you know, an attempt at at, uh, you know, early, early Southern architecture. Right, right. Essentially, you know, keep, keep in mind this, this, this version of the Democratic Party is a far different than the Democratic Party of today. Although it seems Governor Long is, you know, seemed to be pretty progressive for a Democrat at the time because Democrats at that time were were racist pretty much that's true yeah the the republicans that he defeated at that time were were progressives and descendants of those particular republicans became today's democrats that is yes they did in 1929 he called a special legislative session to enact the five cent per barrel tax on refined oil production to fund his social programs. The state's oil interests opposed the bill and in response, Governor Long declared in a radio address that any legislator who refused to support the tax had been bought by oil companies. A caucus of opponents led by freshman lawmaker Cecil Morgan and Ralph Norman Bauer introduced an impeachment resolution against Long. 19 charges were listed, ranging from blasphemy to subordination of murder. And subordination is essentially, it is where um, you give false testimony. So it's, it's essentially you're, you're lying to the court about something. Well, apparently he was lying about certain politicians being bought off by the oil industry because he just simply he just gave that as a blanket ac- accusation without any any apparent proof. How do you know when a politician is lying? When he opens his mouth. That's right, when he opens his mouth. 
he Huey Long tried to close the session, but the Speaker John B. Fournette, who supported Governor Long, called for a vote to adjourn. Despite most representatives opposing adjournment, the elected the electronic voting board tallied 68 A's and 13 nays. Opposing representatives began chanting that the voting machine had been rigged. Some rushed for the speaker's chair to call for a new vote, but met resistance from their colleagues who supported Long. This caused a brawl, later known as Bloody Monday. Legislators threw inkwells, they attacked each other with brass knuckles, and Huey Long's brother Earl Long bit a legislator's neck. Did you know about that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Following the fight, the legislator voted to remain in session and proceed with impeachment. Proceedings in the House took place with dozens of witnesses, including a hula dancer who claimed that Huey Long had been frisky with her. He was impeached on eight of the 19 charges, and he was the third Louisiana governor charged in the state's history following Reconstruction Republicans Henry Clay Warmoth and William Pitt Kellogg. Now, do you think that Huey Long took this lying down? No. No, he did not. He fought back. Conviction would force him from the governorship and permanently disqualify him from holding any public office in Louisiana. And he took his case to the people with a mass meeting in Baton Rouge where he alleged that impeachment was a ploy by Standard Oil to undermine him. The House referred to the charges in the Louisiana Senate in which conviction, in which conviction required a two-thirds majority. Huey Long produced a round-robin statement signed by 15 senators pledging to vote not guilty regardless of the evidence. The impeachment process, now futile, was suspended without holding an impeachment trial. It had been alleged that both sides used bribes to buy votes and that Long later rewarded the round robin signers with positions or other favors. So there you go. That's politics. I mean, yeah, it's the Louisiana way. (laughs) It is the Louisiana way. His response to the impeachment was to treat his opponents ruthlessly. He fired their relatives from state jobs and supported their challengers in elections. He concluded that extra legal means would be needed to accomplish his goals. He said, I used to try to get things done by saying please. Now I just dynamite them out of my path. (laughs) (laughs) And this is when the death threats really started. This caused him to surround himself with bodyguards And he was angry at the press and created his own newspaper called the Louisiana Progress. The paper was extremely popular and was widely distributed by policemen, highway workers, and government truckers. And in 1930, he campaigned for the state senate. And this is where we are going to leave our story for now. Next week, we will talk more about his political career, and we will talk about more enemies that more enemies that he made and we will also be discussing his death was he assassinated or was he accidentally killed the debate still rages on today i'm surprised that there's even a debate over that given the number of 
the number of enemies he made and well the bullet holes in the in the walls at the uh, in the first Florida State Capitol that are, that have been you know that, that are there to this day. Well, like I said, you will want to hear the evidence before you make a decision. Right. Right. So, Brian, do you have any final thoughts? Well, as a politician, especially in Louisiana, if you if you align yourself too far. Uh, too far along the side of the of the common man at the expense of uh, of industry and business uh, you will definitely make enemies anywhere as Louisiana Louisiana especially yes. and dear listeners we thank you so much for listening to us we really appreciate your support we appreciate word of mouth we appreciate any any reviews or ratings that you would like to give us. We are on all the social medias, which will be linked in the show notes. And we are also on YouTube. So if you'd like to subscribe to us there, please do so. And of course, be safe, be kind, and don't park next to vans. And remember that we're all human beings. And if it's dark, it's dangerous, and it feels unsafe. Don't be there in the first place. Don't make the news in such a fashion. And if you are speaking to law enforcement in a professional capacity and you are not the victim or the witness to a crime, lawyer up. We'll talk to you next week. Goodbye. Good night.